Welcome to Takeaway Science, another in the series of short podcasts produced by Blast at the Open University. This time, there's a definite physics and astronomy theme to the podcast. Later on, Dave Rothery from the Open University's Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences talks with Mahesh Anand, academic fellow at the OU's Centre for Earth, Planetary Space and Astronomical Research. You may have heard these two on another Takeaway Science podcast, talking about the planet Mercury. This time, they're going to be discussing the Moon and how it was formed. After that, two space scientists, Professor Andrew Coates and Elizabeth Seward, tell us who their science heroes are. But first, I get the chance to talk with Dr Tara Shears from the University of Liverpool about the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. So, Tara, you're involved with what's been described as the world's biggest physics experiment, the Large Hadron Collider. What is the Large Hadron Collider and how does it work? Well, the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC for short, is basically the most powerful particle accelerator in the world. It's 27 kilometres long and it's a circular particle accelerator. And we're going to use it to basically just try and understand the universe a little bit better than we do already. What we want to do, basically, is to try and work out what the universe is made of at its very deepest level of matter. And we want to know what holds these pieces of the universe together and why, ultimately, the universe is the way it is. And and what does it comprise, the, the large hadron control? It's just huge circular beams of photons, isn't it? That's right. So... What's going to happen inside the LHC when it's, when, when it's going is that there will actually be two beams of subatomic particles that circulate around it, but in opposite directions. And what the LHC does is it takes these two beams of particles and it accelerates them to, until they're going incredibly fast, you know, practically at the speed of light. And then once it's done that, it takes these two beams of particles and it brings them into collision with each other at four points around this 27-kilometer long ring. And this is the interesting bit, because when you smash these beams together that are incredibly energetic, what you do for a very tiny instance of time in a very tiny area of space is you've basically recreated the conditions of the universe about a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. And why that's interesting to us is that if you could see back into the universe at that time, if you could somehow magically go back to the Big Bang, it would look very different. You'd find that it would be this sort of seething mass of fundamental particles like electrons, like quarks, the the ingredients of atoms, if you like. Wow. I mean, there's one particle in particular I think uh, certain people are interested in. That's the Higgs boson, isn't it? This rather mysterious hypothetical particle at the moment. Yes, well, the, the, the Higgs is really interesting because it really is the missing link in our understanding of the universe at the moment. And it's really frustrating because we have this fantastic theory that we use to describe the universe. And the theory is really good. It's so good that we haven't yet made a measurement in any of our experiments that disagree with any of its predictions. It's so good, in fact, we call it the standard model. And yet... One thing the standard model has predicted that we've not yet found is the existence of this elusive Higgs particle. And and what is it? What's what's it responsible for? We think the Higgs particle is responsible for basically for giving mass to our fundamental particles. That's its job. It makes the top quark 
much much more massive, much heavier, if you like, than tiny, itty, little bit, bitty particles like the electron. That's its job, and yet it has a much deeper role as well, in that inside our theory, it's responsible not just for doing that, but it keeps the whole theory on track. It makes us able to make predictions with our theory, because without the Higgs, the whole theory breaks down, a whole understanding of the universe breaks down. And that's why it's of such fundamental importance to us to look for it and to establish whether it exists or not. Because if it doesn't, then we're going to have to really rethink our understanding of everything. It's back to the drawing board for you particle physicists, isn't it? Yeah. But, but if, you don't, if you don't detect the Higgs boson, it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't exist, does it? You're right. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it does mean that it doesn't exist in the form that we predict it to in our theories. So it is possible that we could have a more sort of exotic version of it around, if you like, that our experiments just wouldn't be able to detect. But in that case, then it still means that our understanding of the universe isn't quite the way we thought it was. And there's, there would be a li- there'd be a bit of work for us to do then to try and work out exactly what was happening. You must be terrifically excited. As, as are th- There are a multitude of people working on this project, aren't there? Well, give us an idea of the scale of the thing. It's absolutely enormous. The LHC is a truly global collaboration. Would you believe that half the particle physicists in the world come to CERN to work on the LHC? And they're from over 85 nationalities around the globe. It's a huge number of people. And the experiments are huge as well. If I can just pick out a couple of examples, the ATLAS and CMS experiments have over 2,000 people collaborating on each of them. And... On the one hand, you'd think, gosh, how on earth do you ever make this many people work together, especially if they're physicists, because, you know, we, we all like to think we're right. And, um, but in fact, it turns out that you need this many people to design and build such complicated and costly experiments because everybody shares the cost as well. And you also need all these people to actually make the experiments run when we do get data because we all have to take our turn in taking night shifts to make sure that the experiment's taking data. We all take our turn in making the particle detectors inside run perfectly to writing bits of software. So really, it does take the efforts of all of those 2,000 people in a particular experiment to make the data come out in a form that we can try and understand and then use for our research. So if you like, collaboration at that scale is really inbuilt into the whole enterprise. You you can't escape it. It has to work. It's the only way it can work. Mm. And what's in it for you on a a personal level as far as the research that you're doing? I just think it's the most interesting stuff you could be doing. (laughs) I'm so glad I can do it for my day job. I I can't imagine anything more interesting than trying to understand what the universe is all about, what it really is made of at, it, at the subatomic level, you know, what makes it tick. It's a very exciting time, not just because it's a great leap into the unknown that we've been working for years to sort of make happen, but also because we've actually physically built the bits for it and we're dying to see what they do inside. Is there a website, a URL you can give us where listeners can go to, for further information about the LHC and what it's doing? One of the best places where you can go to to learn more is to go to the website of CERN itself. So just get your browser up and go to www.cern.ch and CERN is just C-E-R-N. Good luck, Tara, and thanks very much for your time. No problem.
Tara Shears there, who's lucky enough to be working on one of the most exciting and, it has to be said, expensive science projects ever undertaken, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Well, if you've an interest in the fundamental laws of modern physics and the ways in which mathematics is used to state and apply these laws, then you'll probably find the Open University third-level course, The Quantum World, right up your street. It's a course that surveys the physical principles, mathematical techniques and interpretation of quantum theory. The Schrödinger equation, the uncertainty principle, the exclusion principle, fermions and bosons, measurement probabilities, entanglement, perturbation theory and transition rates are all covered in the course. Applications include atoms, molecules, nuclei, solids, scanning, tunnelling, microscopy and quantum cryptography. The quantum world also presents recent evidence relating to some of the most surprising and non-classical predictions of quantum mechanics. You can check the course out by logging on to www3, uh, that's the numeral 3, www.open.ac.uk forward slash study. Click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the link to physics and astronomy courses. And now, as promised, here's Dave Rothery, senior lecturer in the OU's Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences, talking with his OU colleague Mahesh Anand, about what we've learned from the lunar rock samples brought back to Earth by the Apollo space mission. Here's Dave. Hello, I'm Dave Rothery from the Open University, and I'm going to be talking to my colleague Mahesh Anand. Now, it's 39 years since we first landed on the moon with Apollo 11, Mahesh. What was so exciting about what Apollo discovered? Well, Dave, as you know, we collected a lot of samples when we went to the moon in 1969 and thereafter. We collected about 382 kilograms of lunar sample, and only a fraction of which has been actually studied in great detail so far. And what the analysis of Apollo samples revealed to us uh, was that the moon actually formed through a giant impact um, of two bodies, uh, one which was the size of, of the Mars and one um, was of our own Earth. And uh, the resulting body was uh, Moon. And what we also found out that the uh, rocks that we found on the Moon uh, were very ancient. Uh, there were two, two main types of rocks, one that formed the lunar highland, which were almost as old as the age of the Moon at about four and a half billion years, whereas there were volcanic rocks on the moon that were mainly uh, in the age ranges of about three to four billion years. Now, we're going to be learning a lot more about the moon uh, in the upcoming years because there are several missions to the moon either already there or, or planned to go. Now, what can we say about those, Mahesh? I think we are in very exciting times. Uh, we already have a lunar orbiter uh, from uh, uh, two countries uh, each, um, uh, one from Japan called Kaguya and one from China called Changi-1, and we are in the process of sending uh, another lunar orbiter called Chandrayaan-1, which is uh, an Indian mission and of which, as you know, both you and I are a co-investigator on one of the instruments that will be flown on this instrument. And, and basically we are going to learn a lot more about the global geology of the moon, which actually we lacked because, you know, 39 years ago, 
Uh, we did not have these technologies. Uh, we went to the moon to, 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 to small areas. We collected samples and we came back. And really after that, that has been a question. So, so now is the time that we are going to learn a, a whole lot more about the moon and perhaps use that to study even other planets. Dave Rothery there, talking with Mahesh Anand, academic fellow at the OU's Centre for Earth, Planetary, Space and Astronomical Research. If you're interested, you can catch them in another Takeaway Science podcast discussing Dave's research on the planet Mercury. And if that isn't enough, then you might also like to know that the OU offers a short Level 1 introductory course for budding astronomers. Called, oddly enough, Introducing Astronomy, it looks at some of the topics that regularly crop up in newspaper reports, such as violent stellar explosions, distant galaxies and the Big Bang. Introducing Astronomy aims to develop an understanding of topics like these, with sections on planets, stars, galaxies, extraterrestrial life and the origin of the universe. And even if you're a newcomer to science, don't worry because the course introduces new scientific ideas as and when you need them, progressively developing more sophisticated concepts and skills along the way. If you're an amateur astronomer, or just interested in reading popular books on astronomy, you'll find that introducing astronomy will improve your understanding of the subject and perhaps introduce you to areas of astronomy that you might not have met before. To find out more about this or any of the OU's other short science courses, log on to www.open.ac.uk forward slash study, click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the appropriate links. And so to the final sequence in this Takeaway Science podcast. Earlier this year, we paid a visit to the 2008 Royal Society Summer Exhibition where we got the chance to eavesdrop on two space scientists, Professor Andrew Coates from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory at University College London, and Elizabeth Seward, a space mission scientist at EADS Astrium. They were discussing their science heroes. Let's hear what they've got to say. I think one of my heroes of space science is, uh, is James Van Allen. So this is one of the real pioneers of the space age. He was uh, involved at the beginning, the very first satellites which were going up into orbit. And he discovered something which was completely unexpected, um, and you had to go into space to do it, and that was the Earth's radiation belts. We didn't know until Van Allen's, Van Allen's work with the first scientific satellites that, that they were there. And they turn out to be, even today, a very important um, thing to know about in terms of commercial satellites in space and other satellites in space, because th this um, ring of radiation around the Earth is there. Um, and so that's, that's sort of one of the things. And as you go further and further into space, you find, of course, things that uh, you, you hadn't expected in the past. And just at the moment, in planetary exploration, it's a really interesting and, uh, and stimulating time because we have Cassini-Huygens at Saturn, uh, we have Mars Express at Mars, Venus Express at, at Venus. And so even in Europe in space science, it's a wonderful time with getting data, and we're also looking forward to the future with uh, ExoMars. But, you know, the beginnings of space uh, exploration were really sort of pioneering days, and I think that's where my, my, some, some of my heroes lie. I'm Elizabeth Seward from Astrium. Uh, we're a space company, so we build and design satellites, but also the whole range of space services from launchers to operating satellites in space. Uh, my space hero, or my science hero, uh, would actually be Arthur C. Clarke, who's more well known for his science fiction books, but who was in fact a physicist who came up with the idea of geostationary satellites. 
So this is the orbit where satellites take 24 hours to orbit the Earth, which means they hover over the same point on the Earth if you put them above the equator. But he was my hero, not really for that, but because he wove all of this science into his science fiction novels and it was all true and accurate. And it gave me my first taste of space and science, which is what made me become interested in it and go on to work for a satellite company. Space scientists Andrew Coates and Elizabeth Stewart there. You know, there's a second-level open university course called Planetary Science and the Search for Life, which tackles some of the really fundamental questions about our solar system. For instance, how did the solar system form? And how has it evolved? Why aren't all the planets like Earth? How and why did life arise on Earth? Has life arisen elsewhere in the solar system or beyond? And could it be intelligent? Planetary Science and the Search for Life takes a close look at the exploration of the solar system by spacecraft... Planetary processes such as volcanism and impacts, the structure of planets and their atmospheres, and asteroids, comets and meteorites. The course comprises two modules, each consisting of a full-colour book supported by DVD and web-based materials. To find out more about planetary science and the search for life, or any other OU course for that matter, log on to www.open.ac.uk forward slash study... As ever, click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the links to astronomy. Well, that's the end of this particular Takeaway Science podcast brought to you by Blast at the Open University. For other podcasts in the series, revisit the Open University Science Faculty website at open.ac.uk forward slash science. And if you want to find out more about some of the science outreach work carried out by the OU visit the BLAST webpages at blast.open.ac.uk. But that's all for now. So from me, Mike Bullivant, adios amigos.